Chapter Twelve of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Twelve: The Night of the Full Moon. It seems too good to be true that it should end like this," said Monny. She set it on the roof of Mina House, in the kiosk room made of mushrbia work, which I had engaged for a little private dinner party that night. You see, it was the night of the full moon, the magic night of the Sphinx spell, which must not be wasted, no matter how tired you may be or how many excitements you may have lived through. Anthony and I had had our explanations. He had told me that one night in a cafe, where he was spreading news of his dream. He heard two men talking in low voices about the house of the crocodile. The word hashish had not been mentioned, but Anthony had imbibed a vague impression of something secret, and had wondered and had been interested. Then the matter had slipped his mind, but summoned in the night from the writing of letters to advise Mrs. Jones, he had recalled Monny's wish to visit a hashish den. He knew of none, but suspected the existence of one or two. How to find out in a hurry? He had asked himself. And with that, the remembrance of those few whispered words in the cafe had come echoing back to him. He acted upon the suggestion, went to the door of the swinging crocodile, knocked, and knocked again. Had the door opened to him as if in surprise by an apparently sleepy man, announced the motive of his coming as if it were a foregone conclusion that hashish could be smoked in the house by the initiated. His disguise was not suspected. It never was when he played the Egyptian. And when they asked who had sent him, he had the inspiration to utter the name of that Bey who had been Mansour's master. This gave him entrance. He was taken upstairs, passed through the door forbidden to the public, and the first person he saw in the long room as he entered was Bedr smoking a goza, one of those coconut cane-stemmed pipes in which hashish is mingled with the Persian tobacco called tumbak. Bedr was accused of treachery and defended himself. The ladies had insisted; it was his place to obey. He had done no wrong in engaging a carriage to wait outside the Gezira Palace Gardens, and bringing his employers to the best place in Cairo for the hashish smoking. The ladies were safe and happy in a private room where they had tried their little experiment, and now they were sleeping. As soon as they waked and felt like going home, he was ready to take them. It was for Miss Gilder, not for Bedr, to beg pardon of her friends if they were frightened. And all the time it had seemed to Anthony that the man was expecting some one to arrive. He watched the doorway half eagerly, half anxiously, when a servant came or went. He started and betrayed emotion which might have been disappointment or relief. But when Anthony questioned him, he said, "I expect no one, Effendi. It is only that I shall not be easy till we get the ladies home. Now you tell me their people are alarmed." Just then, and before Anthony saw the girls, a servant had come running in to say that there was an alarm. Something had happened in the street, and the police were there. Mansour feared that it was a ruse, and that the house was being watched back and front. Where the forbidden thing is, no precaution can be too great. For their own sakes and Mansour's sake, no one must go out. Perhaps not until the next night. But luckily, a saint's day would give peace for the morrow, and all doors could be shut without causing remark. The news that there was no escape for many hours to come distressed no one apparently except Antoun. He had gone to the door and had tried to open it, but found that already it was locked on the other side. 
Then he knew that it was useless to struggle, for he was unarmed, the door was thick, and no one outside could hear if he shouted. He must use his wits, but first he must make sure that the two girls were safe. He forced, rather than induced, better to show him the room they had engaged, a small one, closed only with a portiere, and looking over the court, down into the open-fronted recess where Mansour's family life went on, like a watchdog's in his kennel. It was true, as Better had said, the girls slept on a cushioned mattress, wrapped in black haberas, their faces turned to the wall. As they could not be taken out, Anthony did not wake them, but let them get, in peace, their money's worth of dreaming. His next thought was to try and bribe the Arab attendant to smuggle out a letter, but acceptable as a bribe would have been, the man explained his helplessness to earn it, at least for the time being. He could do nothing till one of his fellow-servants came up from below, to pass food for the imprisoned smokers through a hole in the door, made purposely in case of just such an emergency. Probably no one would appear till morning, for who would be hungry before then? Even with the morning it might be Mansour himself who would bring the food, and inquire again at the door if all were well within. But if the noble Haji wrote the letter, it should be sent when opportunity arose. One of the servants below stairs, said the man, was his father, who might, during the next day, be able to slip out as if on some errand. Then he would, perhaps, take a letter, if he could be sure of good pay, and that he would not be delivered up to the police. So Anthony had written on a sheet torn from his notebook, and had made an envelope of another sheet. The address of the Gazira Palace had helped the man to believe that no evil would reach his father, and a sweetener in the shape of all Anthony's ready money had done the rest. But evidently the old man had not succeeded in finding an excuse for an errand until after the noon hour, and meanwhile time had seemed long in the house of the crocodile. When the girls waked, wanting to go home, they were ill. They found the game not worth the candle, but Anthony's presence had given them comfort. They were humble and remorseful, and Better was so conspicuously a worm that Monny consented to his discharge. "'It would take more time than we've got to make him worth converting,' she said to Rachel, when the Armenian had carefully laid all the blame of the expedition upon her shoulders. Never were two runaway children more glad to be found and restored to their anxious relatives than Monny Gilder and Rachel Guest. As for better, he took his dismissal with a week's wages submissively, but the gravest question concerning him still lacked an answer. Had he merely been officious and indiscreet in guiding the girls secretly to the house of the crocodile, and there procuring hashish to buy them dreams, or had he wanted something to happen in that house which had not happened? A certain amount of brow-beating from Antoon and bullying from me dragged nothing out of him, and perhaps there was nothing to be dragged. Perhaps it was through oversensitiveness that Bridget and I dwelt suspiciously upon Better's motives, and asked each other who it was that he had expected at the house of the crocodile. Even Anthony did not accuse the Armenian of anything worse than slyness and cowardice, according to him the two worst vices of a man, but he volunteered to find out what mysterious night disturbance in the street had caused the sudden closing of the doors. It was Biddy's thought that the person better wished to meet might fortunately have been prevented by this very disturbance from keeping his appointment, and Monny saved a serious ending to her adventure. It began to seem rather a worry, travelling with so important a young woman as Miss Gilder, and a vague dread of the future hung over me as it hung over Bridget, who loved the girl. We felt, dimly, as if we had a warning, and did not yet know how to profit by it. 
the atmosphere was charged with electricity, as before an earthquake, and we felt that the affair of the hashish den might be but a preface to some chapter yet unwritten. Still, it was impossible not to forgive Monny her indiscretion. Indeed, she became so honey-sweet and childlike in her desire to make up for what we had suffered, that the difficulty was not to like her better. She besought us to forget the episode. If we only knew how sick she and Rachel had been, we'd see why they never wanted to think of those hours again. And when I chanced to mention that to-night would be full moon, the night of the nights when the Sphinx and the Giza pyramids held their court, Monny begged to have the bad taste of her naughtiness taken out of her mouth by a dinner at Mina House. We might dine early, and plunge into the desert later, when the moon was high. Of course I proposed that all should be my guests, all except Antun, who, though recognized as a gentleman of Egypt, was considered by Miss Gilder an alien, not exactly on dining terms. He was supposed to go home to his own address. At eight-thirty he was to take a taxi to Mina House, where he would arrive before nine, in time to help me organize my expedition. I explained to Monny that, though we should dine privately, it would be my duty to see that the Candace people paid their respects to the Sphinx, and gazed upon her as she ate moon-honey. If they missed this sight, or if anything went wrong with their way of seeing it, I should never be forgiven. But the much-chastened Monny graciously did not mind. She thought it would be fun to watch the sheep-dog rounding up his flock. Useless to explain to her the subtle social distinction between a flock and a set, both with capitals. To her the blaze of the set's smartness was but the flicker of a penny-dip. We could drive the crowd on ahead, and look at our moon when they were out of its light. So there's the explanation of Monny's presence in the Mushurbia kiosk on the roof of Mina House, on the night following the great adventure, which would have put most girls to bed with nervous prostration. Part of our program, to be sure, had failed, but it was not a part which could interfere with my selfish enjoyment. Mrs. East had changed her mind at the last moment, and had decided not to dine, although I had invited Sir Marcus on purpose for her. According to Biddy, Cleopatra had something up her sleeve, something her excuse of seediness was meant to cover. Maybe it was only a flirtatious wish to disappoint Sir Marcus. Maybe it was something more subtle. But it did not much matter to anybody except Lark, who was obliged to put up with Mrs. Jones in place of Mrs. East, for Rachel Guest and the sculptor, whom we nicknamed Bill Bailey, were to be paired off, and, urged by Biddy, I intended to monopolize Monny. I suppose there could scarcely be a more ideal room for an intimate dinner-party on a moonlight night than that kiosk on the flat roof of Mina House. Through the wide-open doors, and the open walls like a canopy of black lace lined with silver, the moonlight filtered, sketching exquisite designs upon the white floor and bringing out jeweled flecks of color on the covering and cushions of the divans. There was no electricity in this kiosk, and we aided the moonlight only with red-shaded candles, and ruby-domed fairy lamps, the exact shade of the crimson ramblers which decorated the table. For the corners by the open doors I had ordered pots of Madonna lilies, which gave up their perfume to the room, and looked, in the mingling radiance of rose and silver, like hovering doves. "'Oh, I could hug and kiss that moon,' sighed Monny, tall and fair in her white dress, as the lilies I had chosen for her." I was relieved that the man in the moon has now been superseded by a Gibson girl, for Monny was beautiful at that moment as a vision met in the secret garden which lies on the other side of sleep. And the stars, Monny said, as I watched her uplifted face, wondering just how much I was in love with it, 
The little stars high up at the zenith twinkle like silver bees. Those that sit on the edge of the horizon are huge and golden, like desert watchfires. Oh, do you know, Lord Ernest, if quite a dull, uninteresting man, or, or one that it would be madness to even think of, proposed to me on such a night, I should have to say yes. It would seem so prosaic and such a waste of moonlight not to. Wouldn't you feel like that if you were a girl? I'm sure I should, I replied with extraordinary sympathy. I do feel like it, even as a man. I warn you not to propose, or I shall snap at you. She laughed, but I was wondering if I were dull and uninteresting enough to stand a chance. It seemed as if Providence were actually handing it to me. But just then Biddy and Sir Marcus came to the doorway which had so becomingly framed Monny's form and mine. Naturally, that put the idea out of my head, and two such opportunities don't come to a man in a single night. Dinner was not ready yet, and we sauntered about on the flat roof, white as marble in the moonlight. The sky was milk, the desert honey, far off Cairo with its crowned citadel, pale opal veined with light, and faintly streaked with misty greens and purples. The cultivated land a deep indigo sea. The fantastically built hotel, in its ancient beginnings the palace of a pasha, was like a closely huddled group of chalets, looked down on from its central roof. On the fringe of the oasis garden the cafés and curiosity shops buzzed with life, and glittered like lighted beehives. Outside the gateway donkey-boys and camel-men and drivers of sand-carts chattered. Tonight, and on a few moonlight nights to come, they would reap their monthly harvest. They were all ready to start off anywhere at a moment's notice, but apart from them and their clamour reposed a row of camels previously engaged, free, therefore, to enjoy themselves until after dinner. As we gazed down as if from a captive balloon at the line of sitting forms, they looked immense, like giant newborn birds, with their huge egg-shaped bodies and thin necks. Along the arbor road from Cairo flashed motor-car after motor-car, their lights winking in and out between the dark trees, now blazing, now invisible, their occupants all intent on doing the right thing, dining at Mina House, and seeing the full moon feed honey to the Sphinx. Some, wishing to save time, or to dine later in town, or to take a train for somewhere later, did not turn in at the hotel gate, but swept past with siren shrieks, and tore on, hoping to rush the steep hill to the pyramid platform at top speed. Only a few of the strongest succeeded, and, with a dash instead of an ignominious crawl, triumphantly fanned their lights along the base of that vast monument, in which King Cheops vainly sought eternal privacy. What would he say, we wondered, could he see the crowds of tourists tearing out to pay him a call, on their way to the Sphinx? Would he blight them with a curse, or would he remember pearly nights of old, when his subjects assembled in multitudes for the feast of the goddess Neith, when the moon was full, and the white, brightly painted houses along the Nile reflected their flower-like illuminations in the water? Anyhow, as Sir John Biddle would have said, this was helping to keep his name before the public, and nothing could succeed in vulgarizing his mountain of gold in its gleaming waves of desert, under pulsing stars and creamy floods of moonlight. Anthony had told me that the great tip was to go out while the less instructed sightseers ate their dinner. Then the desert was comparatively empty, and more important still, instead of having the moon on her head and her face in shadow, the Sphinx received its full blaze in her far-seeing eyes. Of this advice I meant to avail myself, feeling vaguely guilty as I thought of the giver, 
who was absent from the feast, Anthony Fenton, one of the finest young soldiers in Egypt, who could be lionized in drawing-rooms at home if he would stand for it. Anthony, who, would he but accept the repentant overtures of that tyrannical old prince, his maternal grandfather, might inherit a fortune and a palace at Constantinople. Yet, as Ahmed Atun and his green turban, he was taboo at our little party. He was due later, however, and I rather expected to find him waiting below, when I excused myself to descend to the set. But I had not left the roof, when a note for Monny was brought up by an ebony person in livery. I watched her as she read, one side of her face turned to marble by the moon, the other stained rose by the red-shaded candles. I thought that the rosy side grew more rosy as she finished the letter. "'There's a message for you, Lord Ernest,' she said. "'Aunt Clara wants me to tell you that Antoon can't meet you at the hotel, because she changed her mind about not coming out, and sent for him. She felt better, it seems, and got thinking what a pity it would be to miss the full moon, so she suddenly remembered that Antoon wasn't with us, and decided to invite him. She writes in a hurry, and didn't know where they would dine, but says anyhow they'll meet us by the Sphinx between nine and ten. "'Where they'd dine?' echoed Sir Marcus, pricked to interest. "'Was she going to let Fen—I mean, Antoon, take her out to dinner?' "'Apparently she was,' replied Monny, rather dryly. "'Why not?' asked Bridget. "'He's perfectly splendid. And Mrs. East, not that she isn't a young woman, of course, is old enough to go out without a chaperone.' "'If we're to meet them between nine and ten at the Sphinx,' said Monny briskly, "'don't you think, Lord Ernest, you'd better hurry and get your people off, so we can set out ourselves?' "'I'm going,' I assured her, "'but I thought we planned to give them a long start, "'in hopes that they might be ready to come back by the time we arrived.' "'Oh, well,' she said, "'that will make it very late, won't it, and we may miss Aunt Clara. "'Anyhow, lots of other creatures, just as bad as yours, will be there, "'for we can't engage the desert like a private sitting-room.' "'That settled it. "'I dashed downstairs and sorted out my charges. "'They had got themselves up in all kinds of costumes for this act.' One man had on a folding opera hat, which he had thought just the right thing for Egypt, as it was so easy to pack. Girls in evening dress, men young and old in helmets and straw hats, ancient maidens and fat married ladies in dust cloaks or ball gowns, climbed or leaped or scrambled onto camels with shrieks of joy or moans of horror, or else they tumbled onto donkeys, which bounded away before the riders were well on their backs and men, women, and animals were shouting, giggling, groaning, gabbing, snarling, and squeaking, an extraordinary procession to pay honor to the pyramids and the lonely sphinx. We of the roof party considered ourselves, figuratively speaking, above camels, far above donkeys, and scornful of motor-cars, in which it was irreverent to charge up to the great pyramid as if to the door of a café. We walked, and Moni still lent herself to me, but she no longer bubbled over with delight at everything. A subdued mood was upon her, and her eyes looked sad, even anxious, in the translucent light which was not so much like earthly moonlight as the beginning of sunrise in some far, magic dreamland. She had the pathetic air of a spoiled child who begins suddenly, if only vaguely, to realize it cannot have everything it wants in the world. And she merely smiled when I told her how, to ensure the peace of the desert, I had offered a prize of a large blue scarab as big as a paperweight, for that member of the set who did not even say oh to the sphinx. Antoon had vetted the alleged scarab and pronounced it a modern forgery, but nobody else knew that, and as a prize it was popular. The sky had that clear pale blue of dawn when day first realizes that, 
Though born of night, it is no longer night. Cassiopeia's chair and Orion were being tossed about the burning heavens like golden furniture out of a house on fire, and one great star-jewel had fallen on the apex of cruel Khufu's pyramid. I should have liked to believe it was Sirius, the lucky star sacred to Isis and Hathor, but Monny's schoolgirl knowledge of astronomy bereft me of that innocent pleasure. No wonder that the ancient Egyptians, with such jewels in their blue treasure-house, were famous astrologers and astronomers before the days when Ramesses' daughter found Moses in the bulrushes of Rhoda Island. The stars spoke to us as we walked, soft-footed through the sand, and the pure wind of the desert spoke other words of the same language, the language of the universe and nature. Here and there yellow lights in a distant camp flashed out like fireflies. Far away across the billowing sands, rocks bleached like bone gave an effect of surf on an unseen shore. Now and then a silent, swift-moving Arab stealing out of the shadow might have been the white woman who haunts the Sphinx, hurrying to a fatal tryst, and the great pyramid seemed to float between desert sand and cloudless sky like the golden palace of Aladdin being transported through the air by the genie of the lamp. There never was such gold as this gold of sand and pyramids under the moon. We said that it was like condensed sun-rays, so vivid, so bright, that the moon could not steal its color. Cloud-like white figures were running up Khufu's geometric mountain, Arabs expecting money when they should come leaping down, whole or in pieces, and the khaki uniforms of British soldiers, mounting or descending for their own stolid amusement, made the pyramid itself seem to be writhing, so like was the color of the cloth to that of the stone. No use being angry because the monument was crawling with Tommies. The pyramids were as much theirs as ours, and probably Napoleon's soldiers spent their moonlit evenings in the same way, a thought which somehow made the thing seem less intolerable. We climbed to the vast platform of the Giza pyramids, and then plunged into the billows of the desert in quest of the Sphinx. Sir Marcus was entitled to call himself the pioneer, but we needed no one to show us the way. It was but too clearly indicated by the bands of pilgrims going or returning, and among the latter were those whom Monny callously referred to as poor Ernest's crowd. Miss Hassett Bean and the Biddle girls made us linger, with sand trickling over the tops of our shoes, while they poured into our ears their impressions of the Sphinx. Miss H. B. thought that she, with a capital S, was a combination of goddess, prophetess, and mystery. Enid thought she was like an Irish washerwoman making a face, and Elaine said she was the image of their bulldog at home. Monny, after a sandy introduction, listened to these verbal vandalisms in horrified silence. I could see that she was exerting herself, for my sake, to be civil to my charges, who were more interested in her than they had been in the Sphinx, and that, if she could have done so without hurting their feelings, she would have struck them dead. But my fears that their mental suggestions might obsess her were baseless. She did not speak when the golden billows parted to give us a first vision of the great mystery of the desert. I had led Monny by a roundabout way, and instead of seeing the Sphinx from the back, we came upon her face to face, as she gazed with her wonderful, all-knowing eyes, straight into that world beyond knowledge, which lies somewhere east of the moon. Veiled by the night in silver and blue, with a proud lift of the head, she faced past and future, which were one for her, and the present nothing. The moon gave back for a few hours all her lost loveliness, of which men had robbed her, seeming miraculously to restore the broken features. 
whole and beautiful as they had been in her youth before history began. It was as if in the moon's rays were silver hands, mending the marred majesty, giving life to the eyes and to the haunting secret smile. I thought of the story of King Harmachus, how he dreamed that the sphinx came to life, saying that the sand pressed upon her and she could not breathe. Nobody since his day had for long left her buried. "'What does it mean to you?' I broke the silence to ask. "'I don't know,' Monny said. "'All I know is that she's more wonderful than I expected, and as beautiful as the loveliest marble Venus of Italy, though a thousand times greater, if one perfect thing can be greater than another. She's so great that I don't think she can be meant to be a woman, or even a man. She is like a soul carved in stone.' "'All in a moment you have guessed the riddle,' I exclaimed, liking and understanding the girl better than I had liked or understood her yet. I believe that's the secret of the Sphinx. The king, who had this stupendous idea, and caused it to be carried out, said to some inspired sculptor, "'Make for me from the rock of the desert a portrait, not of me as I am seen by men in my mortal part or cot, for that can be placed elsewhere, but an image of my real self, my soul or ka,' looking past the small things of this world into eternity, which lies beyond this desert and all deserts. Then the sculptor made the sphinx, and gave it such grandeur, such mystery of countenance, that instinctively the souls of people recognized the soul look. You have a soul, and it told you the secret. Only those who have no souls find the sphinx heavy or hideous, or utterly beyond their comprehension. "'Have I a soul?' Monty asked, dreamily. Men I've known have told me I haven't, yet sometimes I've felt a fluttering, and if I have a soul, I shall find it in Egypt. Oh, I shall! Something, yes, the Sphinx herself tells me that. I was tempted to ask, what about a heart? And then, in a violent hurry, before anybody came, to mention my own, into which the moon seemed pouring a little of the honey it had brought for the Sphinx. I did feel that someone owed a moonlight proposal under the Sphinx's nose, or the place where its nose had been, to such a girl as Monny. Her Egyptian experience could never be perfect and complete unless she were proposed to, on the night of the full moon, with the Sphinx's blessing, and as no better man was here to do it, I could not be thought conceited if I took the duty upon myself. Besides, Bridget would so thoroughly approve. "'Look here, Biddy, I mean, Monny, I began hastily. "'There's something I want to tell you, something very important you ought to know.' "'because matters can't go on much longer as they are. "'Is it something about Antoun?' she broke in, with a little gasp, "'as I paused for breath and courage. "'If it is, maybe I know it already.' "'Extraordinary the relief I felt. "'I ought to have suffered a shock of disappointment, "'because I couldn't possibly finish a proposal after such an interruption. "'But instead my spirits went up with a bound. "'Probably, however, that was because her hint was a whip to my curiosity. "'What do you know about Antoun?' I asked. Perhaps I forgot to lower my voice, or perhaps voices carry far across desert spaces as across water. Anyhow, the clear tones of Cleopatra answered like an echo. Antun, Antun, I hear Lord Ernest calling. Biddy, dear little match-making Biddy, had managed Sir Marcus, Bill Bailey, and Rachel, as a circus rider manages three-spirited white horses at one time. The desert was her ring, and she had reined her steeds to her will, keeping them out of my way and Monny's at all costs, no matter whether they saw the Sphinx in back view or noseless profile. But Mrs. East's principal occupation in life was not to get me engaged to the gilded roads. 
and either she lost her presence of mind, or else she was not so much enjoying her moonlight tete-a-tete with Fenton, that it was worth while to hide from us behind a sand-dune. The two emerged from a gulf shadow, Anthony very splendid under the moon, a true man of the desert. I thought I heard Monny draw in a sharp little breath as she saw that noble incarnation of Egypt, so he must have seemed, unless she knew the British reality of him, walking beside Cleopatra. Then came up the others, Sir Marcus, impossible to restrain, and we all talked together as people are expected to talk when they have come thousands of miles to see these monuments of Egypt. Yes, yes, wonderful, incredible. Which do you find more impressive, the Sphinx or the Pyramids? Isn't it a pity that they let the temple between the paws remain buried? And aren't the pyramids just like titanic golden beehives? And can't you simply see the swarming builders, like bees themselves, working for twenty years? Thus we jabbered, and others, many others, appeared to dispute the scene with us, to break the magic of the moonlight, and to puncture the vast silence of the desert with their cooings and gurglings and chatterings in German, English, Arabic, and every other language known since the Tower of Babel. Arab guides lit up the Sphinx with flaring magnesium, an impertinence that should have made hideous with hate the insulted features, but instead turned them for a thrilling instant of suspense into marble. Indeed, none of our petty vulgarities could jar or even fret the majestic calm of the desert and the stone mystery among its billows. The Sphinx gazed above and passed us all. She was like some royal captive surrounded by a rabble mob, yet as undisturbed in soul as though her puny, hooting tormentors had no existence. It was not so much that she scorned us, as that she did not know we were there. When we sorted ourselves out, to escape Sir Marcus, Cleopatra deigned to make use of me, having first observed, with burning interest, that Monny and Rachel were with Bailey, and that Antoun was pointing things out to Bridget O'Brien, as its mans métier, in pictures and advertisements, to point things out to women. "'It's been a wonderful evening,' Mrs. East said. "'It has made up for everything I suffered last night. We brought dinner out into the desert, in that smallest tea-basket, you know, and ate it together, he and I, Anthony and I. There, I may as well confess that's what I called him to myself, for I've guessed your secret and his. But don't be afraid, I won't tell a soul. It's too romantic and fascinating for words, or to put into words.' He let me have my fortune told by an Arab sand-diviner, who came while we were at dinner. I can't repeat to you what the fortune-teller said, but I feel as if I were living in a book. Oh, if only I were writing it myself, and could make everything happen just as I want it to happen! Do you know one thing I would put into the story? No, I can't think, I said rather anxiously. I would have you propose to Monny. Oh, by Jove, Mrs. East! Why, don't you admire her? But, of course, she's irresistible, only she's so horribly rich. And, besides, she doesn't think of me in that way. You can't be sure. Now, Lord Ernest, I'm going to whisper you a secret. I believe, I really do, that Monny would be glad if you'd propose. If I were in your place, if I liked her, I would do so as soon as possible. It might save her from humiliation, from a great trouble. Being a duffer, I could only say once again, By Jove! End of chapter 12